Well, good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the LSE, and thank you all for coming to which, to what I hope will be a really informative evening and, and one which we can all take something from. Uh, your, your guest speaker needs very little introduction because you've all come to hear him and you know who he is. Dr. Tim Bale is Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Sussex, uh, and most importantly, this week, his book, The Conservative Party from Thatcher to Cameron, has been published, uh, and you'll be able to buy it afterwards at a specially reduced price for this evening. However, uh, for now, uh, we're going to hear what Tim has got to say, uh, addressing the subject of the Conservative Party and how it has uh, evolved over the last two decades from, as, as the title put it, being in the doldrums uh, and now kind of heading towards Downing Street. Uh, certainly, from my perspective, I hope that happens. Uh, some of you may disagree with that. I, by the way, I should have introduced myself. Uh, I'm Jonathan Isabey, and I'm co-editor of conservativehome.com, which is the, the country's leading Tory blog, uh, which I, I hope a lot of you read. Uh, and in fact, Tim wrote an article for us just on Monday uh, addressing some of the issues which he's going to address tonight. Anyway, I give the floor to Tim. Thank okay, you. Can I, can I just check that this is working? Okay, that's fine. Okay, it's very unusual for a university lecturer to get a clap um, before he starts. Uh, and it's actually very unusual for a university lecturer to get a clap after they start. So uh, I'm doing quite well. Um, it's not necessary for a book to begin with a poem, but it is necessary uh, that at the heart of every book uh, there should lie a puzzle. And before I start tonight, I want to outline the two central questions that my book tries to answer. The first is, what took this party, a party that is well known for its appetite for power, a party that uh, is very used to, after being defeated, uh, dusting itself off and, uh, and, and coming back very quickly so long, to make that transformation this time around. There's never been, uh, not since anyway the early 20th century and the 19th century, a period where the Conservative Party has taken so long to actually get its act together. So that's the first question I'm interested in answering. Second question follows naturally, if you like, from the first, which is why uh, did it take so little time after 2005 for the party to, as it were, do the right thing. So those are the two questions I want to try and answer in the next 35 minutes, and those are the two questions that drive the book. I should also say something about my approach to politics, and it's also, uh, I guess, uh, very much my approach in this book, because I want to argue that in politics generally, but uh, in terms of uh, falling into the hole and getting out of the hole, we have to uh, take cognizance that politics is about agency as well as structure. In other words, it's about what people do as well as the organizations in which they work. Politics is also about volition as well as environment. In other words, it's about pe what people want to do, what politicians want to do, as well as the context in which they operate. And opposition is about self-help rather than simply waiting it out. I should also say that I believe very strongly in the idea of path dependence, by which I mean what you do or what a politician does early on 
matters a great deal because it constrains his or her ability uh, to do what he or she wants sometime in the future, which is why this book is constructed around uh, an analytical narrative. Um, more precisely, I think that politics involves the interaction between ideas, interests, institutions, and of individuals. By ideas, uh, I guess I mean ideology. By interests, at least when I'm talking tonight, I'm going to be talking about the people who fund the Conservative Party, in other words, the money. By institutions, I mean not just the organisation, but the rules and the processes under which that organisation operates. And by individuals, clearly I'm talking about the men and women who people that particular party. But when I'm talking about individuals, I'm not simply talking about the biographies and the foibles uh, of uh, the individual leaders. I'm also talking um, about uh, some very human failings that all of us have, which takes me on to uh, another point I want to stress, and that what I do in the book, and particularly towards the end of the book, is to suggest that actually we can learn quite a lot from the literature on behavioural economics. You might be more or less familiar with this, although you might not uh, necessarily know the term. I'm talking about uh, the kind of thing that appears in a book like The Paradox of Choice, The Wisdom of Crowds, or even more famously, Freakonomics. So I'm going to be talking in some uh, senses about what it is about human beings, and therefore about politicians who are human beings, that makes them prone to inertia, which makes uh, organisational change, as well as personal change, very difficult. So I'm going to start with ideas, and uh, when I'm talking about the ideas, I'm talking mainly, at first anyway, about the party under Margaret Thatcher and under uh, a rather sad-looking John Major. Um, what I say in the book, and what I want to argue tonight, is that one of the problems for the Conservative Party is that it mistook the electoral success that it enjoyed in the 1980s for, if you like, a permanent recipe for success. In other words, it felt that the reasons that Mrs Thatcher, as far as Conservative politicians were concerned, won election after election, low tax, uh, a populist approach, um, was the universal recipe for winning elections, instead of actually realising that Mrs Thatcher's election victories were contingent. They were based on delivering um, a, a key set of tangible benefits to key voter groups at exactly the right time, and they were also based, of course, on the fact that the Conservative Party in the 1980s had the very great fortune to be... Um, fighting a Labour Party that had completely lost um, both the trust and the respect of the British voters. And I think uh, that the Conservative Party rather forgot that. Which meant that when it decided, I think rationally, to replace Margaret Thatcher in 1990, the Conservative Party felt that it could get away with a change, not of direction, because most people in the Conservative Party still felt that they were going in the right direction, but with a change of tone. And everything we know about the major government, at least as far as academics write about that government, is that actually this was no less a Thatcherite government 
than the government under Mrs. Thatcher herself. The difference, it was hoped, would be John Major himself, a more emollient personality, someone who can convince the electorate that there had been some change without making any really fundamental alterations in what the Conservatives wanted to do. I also uh, believe that to coin a phrase um, first uttered by George Bush, that the Conservatives were guilty of misunderestimating Tony Blair. If you talk to um, Conservative MPs now, many of them will admit that, as far as they were concerned, from 1994 onwards, Blair was essentially a fake who voters would soon see through, and if they didn't, his party would sooner or later bring him down anyway. In other words, they fully predicted that Labour would implode within months, if not uh, a couple of years. So while I don't want to argue that the Conservative Party was necessarily a more ideological party than it had ever been before um, in the 1990s, I do want to argue that it was an ideologically complacent party. And this is summed up quite neatly um, in uh, some words that were um, uh, given to me by Rick Nye, who uh, used to work for the Conservative Party, now uh, of Populous. And, and Rick put it like this. Uh, after 97, the party behaved like a disappointed middle-aged wife whose husband's just run off with his PA and thinks, give it three or four months, and when he needs his socks darned and a home-cooked meal, he'll come crawling back begging for forgiveness. Okay? Well, actually, the electorate uh, didn't come crawling back begging for forgiveness because Blair and Brown were seemingly, anyway, able to um, deliver that mix of uh, social justice, if you like, and economic dynamism that is the aim of uh, most governments, and I guess particularly Labour governments. So what should the Conservatives have been doing? I don't think that that is rocket science. And actually, people like Nye and uh, Andrew Cooper, who worked for the Conservatives and is also now um, with Populous, were telling the Conservatives from certainly 1999 onwards, quite clearly, both within the Conservative Party and then um, after they left the Conservative Party, that it had to get a different message across to the electorate. It had to uh, communicate to the electorate that it had made mistakes, that it had even been a little obsessive at times. It had to communicate that it had heard and understood the voters. It had to tell voters that the party wanted what they wanted. It had to communicate and use um, this uh, phrase that it was moving back to the centre ground where most elections are won, a cliché but probably true, and that it was moving into the 21st century. It had to communicate that above all it was a practical party, not an ideological party, even if it were an ideological party, it shouldn't stress that. And it had to stress that, of course, it had the uh, traditional Tory values of competence, but that it was also caring too. Now, I want to move, first of all, then, um, to look, uh, sorry, second of all, to look at interests. And, and tonight I'm really just going to talk about the people who funded the Conservative Party. Now, Clearly, I'm not in the business of claiming that the Conservative Party is some kind of cipher of finance capital. Okay? But there is an extent, just as is the case with 
um, the trade union link with the Labour Party is that it is the extent, uh, it, it, there is some extent to which money, if you like, uh, if it doesn't talk in the Conservative Party, at least whispers. Uh, what I argue in the book is that um, during the uh, late 90s and early noughties, the people who funded the Conservative Party put very little pressure on the leadership to move in the direction that we've just been talking about. In other words, there was no pressure um, from the money men for the Conservative Party to move into the centre and to communicate that to the electorate. If anything, indeed, the financial flows coming into the party, and we're talking about quite a limited number of individuals who give uh, large amounts of money, push the party to the fringes rather than to the mainstream. I think there was a break point, however, and that was under IDS, which was when things got so bad for the party that uh, the uh, money men, those who were either giving money to the Conservative Party or who had given money to the Conservative Party but had stopped doing so in despair, decided that things had become uh, so bad for the party that they had to act. And one of the interesting things about Ian Duncan Smith's uh, leadership is how long it took the party to actually rid themselves of a leader who many people were convinced within days, if not months, could not do the job. It seems to me that the break point came when the money men uh, actually went public with their disquiet over Duncan Smith's leadership. That's when you saw MPs screw their courage um, to the sticking place and actually make the change. And there's also one man in particular who um, put his mouth where his money is. And here, I guess, I'm really talking in the first case, in terms of pushing the party to the fringes, about someone like Stuart Wheeler, and the man who put his mouth where his money was, I'm talking about the much maligned Lord Ashcroft, uh, who it seems to me, through his um, self-funded research, which resulted in a book called Smell the Coffee, um, which was uh, an attack, if you like, on the way that the 2005 election campaign had been conducted, uh, and in his view uh, had missed so many targets, actually, I think, gave a lot of ammunition for modernizers within the party after 2005. And of course, Ashcroft has had a big role as well in Target Seats Initiative and, and more organizational matters. So that's uh, interest, and I, I guess I've dealt with those quite swiftly, because I want to move on to institutions. Um, Parties are obviously very large, very complex organizations, and any large complex organization has a tendency towards inertia. Okay? They are extremely difficult to change. They are, if you like, oil tankers rather than little speedboats. But one can argue that the Conservative Party had particular institutional problems. The first one I would identify is that it is very difficult in this party to criticize the strategy or what passes for strategy of the leadership without being seen as disloyal. In other words, if anyone exercises what Hirschman calls voice, okay, their loyalty is questioned, and sometimes the only alternative for them is exit. Um, but you don't always have to be a threat to the leadership um, to be criticized, to be ripped to shreds. I think a, a very important critical juncture um, for the party in the late 1990s was Peter Lilly's um, Butler Lecture, 
rather mistimed on his part, actually, as you will see uh, in the book. But this was you know, someone who was very identified with the Thatcherite cause, uh, coming out and saying uh, quite early on, really, that things had to change, informed by his reading of um, the polling that the Conservatives were doing at that point and the focus groups that they were doing came out and said, you know, the, the, the party has to admit that it may have got things wrong, came out and admitted that perhaps there wasn't a role for the market in certain key public services, and Lily was absolutely ripped to shreds for that. And that was a dire warning to anyone else within the party who might choose to um, suggest the alternative strategy, especially uh, in public. And this brings me on to another um, institutional aspect which I find very interesting. I would argue that political scientists, when they divide parties up into the party on the ground, it's the, the party in the country if you like, the party in public office, that's the elected uh, representatives, and uh, the party in central office, that's the, uh, the staffers, the advisors, etc., are missing something. I think nowadays we also have to take account of the party in the media. In other words, the conservative commentariat, those people who write the op-eds and who write the leaders. Because actually, if you look at the party under William Hague, Ian Duncan Smith, and to a lesser extent, Michael Howard, I think it's true to say, because those first two leaders in particular were in so much trouble so early on, they paid far more attention to the party in the media than they did to their activists, understandably, because they've never had much role in the Conservatives' um, policy positioning, or their MPs, or even their shadow cabinets. Okay? So the party in the media, I think, is very important. And it plays an important role in this story, because one can argue that, unlike in the 1980s, on the Labour side, when the Labour Party in the media, and I'm talking about here something like the Daily Mirror and the Guardian, were continually pushing the Labour Party towards the centre, when it came to the Conservatives, the party in the media was actually pushing the party away from the centre and towards the fringes. So it had a malign influence, if you like, if you believe, um, as I do, that uh, a more centrist strategy would have been the best one. The Conservative Party also has a very presidential leadership. Okay, this is not in any sense a collective or democratic organisation. Um, when the leader changes, what you essentially see is regime change. Okay? The leader is the person and the group around him who determine policy and strategy in this party. No one else does. I would argue not really even the shadow cabinet. The shadow cabinet is important in the sense of getting buy-in, but actually it's the group around the leader who matter most of all. And if you've got a system like that with very few collective restraints, You've already got a system where there are no mechanisms, if you like, for criticizing the leadership without your loyalty being questioned, then it's all the more important that you get the right guy with the right strategy. If you make the mistake of electing the wrong person, you're in more trouble in some ways in this party than in many other slightly flatter structured parties. Now, making the right choice very often means deciding what you want and what you need to do before you actually hire someone to do that job. That's after all what most companies do. But the Conservative Party, certainly after 1997 and after 2001, 
rushed into leadership contests. They didn't have any choice, of course, because John Major stepped down straight away and William Hague did exactly the same thing. This unfortunately meant that the Conservative Party was not in a position to conduct a proper post-mortem on its defeats. And the fact that it didn't conduct that post-mortem, the fact that it didn't do its research and think very hard about what it had got wrong and perhaps what it needed to do, uh, made it all the more unlikely that it would choose the right leader and the right strategy. Finally, uh, on uh, institutions, we should stress that political parties, particularly when they're in opposition and choosing a leader, are fishing in a very, very small pond. Okay, we are talking uh, about a party with less than 200 MPs. Once you have excluded the mad, the bad, and the dangerous to know, okay, and once, uh, as most parties do, you think it's important that you elect someone with a reasonably safe seat, you are left with a frighteningly small number of people who can do the job. Okay, which means that your executive search, if you like, is hobbled from uh, the very start. Anyway, talking of very small ponds brings me neatly to this very small pond. Uh, and I'm moving on now to talk about the role of individuals. What I want to say uh, about both William Hague and Ian Duncan Smith um, is twofold. For one thing, um, both of these men, and we'll start off with William Hague, um, were simply incapable of being taken seriously by the public from the very start. Okay? And this is where path dependence comes in. I'm afraid first impressions count for an awful lot, and it is extremely difficult to shift those first impressions. Obviously, William Hague was already in trouble by being Tory boy at the, the Conservative Party conference way back when. Um, he didn't do himself any favours with stunts like this. But secondly, um, William Hague and Ian Duncan Smith were simply too much men of the right to um, put in place or even see the need for the kind of centrist strategy that I've spoken about before. Um, so we'll deal with William Hague not being taken seriously by looking at uh, a memo from his media advisors, uh, which was part of something uh, that they called Project Hague, um, but was unfortunately leaked, I don't know if you were at the Telegraph then, to the Telegraph um, verbatim. And I guess um, it sums up the desperation, if you like, of his media uh, handlers and sums up um, exactly what they thought they had to do. So I'll let you read that while I have a drink of water. Just read that and, and weep. Okay, so I think you can agree if, um, if a party's getting as desperate um, as that, then uh, they are seriously uh, in trouble. But more... More than that, of course, I would argue that William Hague actually wasn't the right man for the job in ideological terms either. Um, because, to quote his biographer, uh, Joanne Nadler, his gut politics are traditionally populist and nationalist right wing, overlaid with Thatcherite economic libertarianism. And that is, after all, what you essentially got from the Conservative Party in the late 1990s. William Hague could, of course, sell that kind of strategy because it was natural to him. 
But the fact that it was so natural to him actually made it very difficult for him to even see the need for um, or the justification for another kind of strategy. And incidentally, I don't buy into the idea that William Hague tried modernizing and then retreated back to some kind of core vote strategy for two reasons. One, I don't think he ever did try modernizing, unless you count him appearing in a Kaggle and um, baseball cap and uh, you know, sipping rum punch at the Notting Hill Carnival. Um, and also because I don't believe in any such thing as the core vote strategy. I think uh, um, uh, a fellow academic, Jane Green, makes this point very well, actually, that the Conservatives didn't fight the 2001 election or the 2005 election thinking that they had to mobilize their core vote so much as actually thought that the only things that they could appeal on to the British public were those issues in which the British public had some sympathy with the Conservative Party, law and order, immigration, and Europe. It's not a core vote strategy. It was an attempt to reach out um, to uh, voters more generally. Um, and as uh, somebody who I interviewed in the book said, William was a right-winger. Let's not pretend he was a prisoner of the right. He was a man of the right. In other words, he was the wrong man to do the kind of job the Conservatives needed to do. Which takes us nicely on to a quizzical-looking Ian Duncan Smith. Um, Ian Duncan Smith basically had the same problem as William Hague, um, with the additional complication that he was not only taken, not only failed to be taken seriously by the public, but he was not taken seriously by his colleagues. Um, and this is a, a quote from the book, which you, you may have seen, because I think John Runtill used this in the, in the Independent can't say who said this, um, but it sums up very neatly, actually, a lot uh, of people's feelings within the Parliamentary Conservative Party about Ian Duncan Smith. Now, it may or may not have been unfair, but nevertheless, this was the reality in terms of the way that people thought about him. The very loyal point refers to um, his behaviour um, over Europe in the mid-1990s. Um, some schemed and plotted. Some just thought it was best to, as one of them put it, put the padlock on the door and wait for better times. But there is a but within Duncan Smith. If you were cynical, you would say that he did the party an enormous favour by, like Michael Foote in 1983, being so bad that actually it helped wake the Conservative Party out of its torpor. Or if you were being less cynical, you would say that he managed to sow the seeds of the kind of social justice, compassionate conservatism approach that uh, David Cameron has since taken up. And we have to remember that David Cameron's soundbite, you know, um, there is such a thing as society, is a direct lift from the Ian Duncan Smith years and a book published then uh, that Ian Duncan Smith wrote the forward to. Which brings us on to Michael Howard. Um, and this, is, of course, is the conventional image of, of, uh, of Michael Howard. Um, now, he was the right man for the job in some ways, because at that stage, things had got so bad for the Conservative Party that they really needed someone to instill a sense of morale and discipline in their parliamentary ranks. And Michael Howard was able to do this incredibly effectively. Okay? He was a serious heavyweight politician. The problem was that he was a serious heavyweight politician with a lot of ideological baggage. So if you wanted a man to modernize the party's appeal, to uh, make a more centrist appeal to the, to the voters, and above all to communicate 
some sense of change, this was not the right man to do the job. As uh, somebody I interviewed put it, Michael's uh, a highly capable, a very old-fashioned, strongly right-of-centre Conservative politician who wasn't well-placed full-heartedly to lead the party back to the centre ground. So in other words, by picking Michael Howard, as the party almost had to do, because it was having a nervous breakdown by that stage, worried about being third behind the Liberal Democrats, they picked a man who was going to paint the party even further into the ideological corner that the Conservatives had got themselves into by that stage. Again, though, there is a but. Because Michael Howard did the Conservative Party uh, an enormous favour he not only put the party back together again in terms of its self-discipline, but by delaying a leadership contest, um, he actually ensured, or at least facilitated, uh, the election of someone who could convincingly um, convey that modernising, more centrist image. So Michael Howard's um, guts, if you like, in not doing a John Major, and not doing a William Hague, but sticking around in order to see through what he hoped would be effective constitutional changes, um, did the party an enormous favour by allowing it to conduct a post-mortem, if you like, on what had gone wrong after 1997. Now that post-mortem to some extent took place during a very extended leadership contest, but the fact that that leadership contest was so extended meant that the post-mortem was much more serious, the examination of what had gone wrong was much more serious than it had been after 97 or 2001. Um, now, I've talked here about the individuals and, and their foibles, but of course we're not just talking about the leader, we're talking about the people around the leader, the shadow cabinet, the, the, the coterie, as it were, that surrounds um, each man. And here's where uh, I'd like to say just a little bit about some of the cognitive biases that actually um, encourage the party towards inertia, towards not changing. And these are things that, in some senses, affect us all, both individually and collectively, but which haven't really been considered yet by political scientists. Political scientists borrow a lot from economics, but we're still borrowing from a very kind of old-fashioned economics, which does not take into account all that we've learned in the last 10 years about the influence of human psychology and the irrationality, if you like, of economic actors. Without using all the jargon, what behavioral economics teaches us, for one thing, is that we value what we already have more than we might get by risking it. In other words, we tend to be risk averse. It's bird in the hand uh, rather than two in the bush. If you're looking then as an organization to change, you have to somehow offset that tendency. We also tend towards long, um, short-term satisfaction rather than long-term gains. Very obviously when you're a leader, and particularly when you're a leader in trouble, it is so tempting to go for those headlines in the Tory tabloids rather than actually maintaining your message discipline and going for a slightly more sophisticated, if you like, um, change message over the long term. We also tend to place more value on anecdotal and personal information than we do on more abstract data, particularly if that abstract data doesn't actually tell us what we want to hear. What I find very interesting about the Conservative Party, and indeed probably other parties as well, is that they spend an absolute fortune on opinion research, 
a very great deal of money on the people who interpret that research for them, and then they don't listen to it. Okay? Then they pay no attention to what the people, um, the electors are telling them, and what the pollsters who they pay to do this research are saying the electors are telling them. Many people in the shadow cabinet and uh, in, in the, the circle around the leaders will actually place more weight on what they hear at the proverbial um, dog and duck pub or the golf club or uh, when they're getting their hair cut or when they're having meetings with their activists or people who they uh, consider to be ordinary voters than they do in what they're being told by scientific or so supposedly scientific uh, research. We also overestimate our efficacy. In other words, we think we're better um, uh, and more effective than we are. We particularly overstate our ability to persuade other people. Most of us think that we are above average in everything, okay? Which is strange because, well, uh, for obvious reasons, we can't all be above average. But politicians in particular, I think, are afflicted by this united bias. Okay? In order to become a politician, it requires a massive amount of self-confidence. And I think a lot of politicians take a heroic attitude to public opinion. They believe that they can shape the preferences of the public rather than necessarily have to accommodate to those preferences. In other words, they believe that they can pull voters towards them rather than necessarily seeing that they have, to some extent, to move towards voters in opposition in particular. I think government and opposition are clearly very different things. In government you can deliver things to people which may make a difference and may in the end help shape their preferences. And there's some indication that, for example, the, the sale of council housing in the 1980s was a, a, a preference shaping move. But that's not something you can do in opposition because you've only got words rather than deeds. And then there are the collective biases like groupthink and herding that we've heard so much about recently, of course, in the Chilcot inquiry and all the other inquiries into Iraq. Why didn't somebody say to Tony Blair, uh, we need to have a meeting about this in cabinet. We need to actually talk about it openly and thrash out whether we really do want to do this thing. And this is something that we see again and again in, in studies of foreign policy, but also domestic policy. The failure of people to disregard the lead from the top and uh, the failure of people not to move with the herd. And again, they're not things that are very often applied to political decision-making and political parties, but I would submit that they make just as much difference in that kind of domestic micro-politics as they do in foreign policy decisions like Iraq, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, all the classic studies of groupthink. Now, of course... Moving on to the next individual, I'm not going to suggest that David Cameron is um, completely immune to all this. Okay? But I am going to suggest that he has several advantages over his predecessors. I don't want to say that um, David Cameron is the heir to Blair. He, after all, has said that himself. Okay? But it is true that he has, if you like, the skill set to be an effective opposition politician in the 21st century, particularly with regard to communication. I think it's true that Cameron is a one-nation Tory. He's not so much a man of the right as his predecessors. But by one nation, I do not mean the kind of patrician, soft-centred, uh, Ian Gilmore, if you like, style of left-wing Tory. I actually think that David Cameron is a one-nation Tory in the true sense of the word, 
in what I would say is the Ian McLeod mould. Some of you may uh, remember Ian McLeod, very inspiring politician for the Tories in the 50s uh, and the 60s, one of the authors of the original One Nation pamphlet, which was not necessarily about a kind of patrician, soggy, leftist approach. It was, however, about adapting to some extent to the context in which he had to operate. It was about adapting to what the electorate wanted, but it was about stressing that the Conservatives can preserve and maintain the welfare state, but simply do it much better than their Labour counterparts. Cameron also embodied change. Okay? Uh, when you've got to make a change message, you need someone who can actually incarnate that message in themselves. And Cameron was able to do this with a series of you know, very striking photographic images. I would, um, if I'd had time, have illustrated my point by perhaps photoshopping these photos and superimposing the faces of previous Tory leaders on these photographs. Can you imagine any other Tory leader who could convincingly you might not be totally convinced, but reasonably convincingly have pulled any of these off. I certainly cannot. David Cameron, after uh, he won the leadership in 2005, I think it was a 2006 New Year's message, said something which made a lot of people cringe. He said, like Gandhi, we have to uh, be the change we want to see in the world. Now, of course, that's fridge magnet philosophy, isn't it? Okay, But there is an extent to which when you have to communicate change and you have to cut through to voters, the ability to embody and incarnate it is extremely uh, important. It's a cliche, but so is a picture. It's worth a thousand words. Now, this hasn't wandered in from another presentation. Uh, this is to make a point that Cameron understands sequencing. As one um, MP put it quite nicely, um, talking about the fact that so many people in the Conservative Party were very worried about his you know, early attempts to change the image and, and hug a hoodie uh, and uh, uh, hug a husky uh, and hug almost everything in sight when he, when he first came in. Um, he made the point that in some senses David Cameron um, was doing a Rolf Harris painting. And if you're familiar with Rolf, uh, you'll be aware that Rolf does all sorts of little squiggles. You have no idea what's going on until finally, right at the end... He makes a few more squiggles and the picture emerges. The point that this guy was making, in other words, then, that Cameron always knew that this was a staged approach, but that he had to reassure people, he had to gain permission to be heard before he could bring back in some of the more traditional Tory themes. Cameron, I would argue, can also calibrate. In other words, he can uh, move between the poles of tough and tender, which is, after all, the point of this poster, yeah? I'll cut the deficit, not the NHS. You can only say this because he was able, going back to the sequencing, to um, uh, reassure people in the first place before he went on to, to a slightly tougher message. Forget the airbrushed um, face, that was probably a very bad mistake. But um, one can argue, however, if I were to criticise Cameron, that recently perhaps all this talk of the age of austerity has actually meant that the Conservatives' claim to competence has shaded back into the kind of cruelty, if you like, that some people associate with the Conservative Party, which presumably uh, explains why you've had some not very edifying tacking back uh, over the last few days um, in light of the fact that the economy is not recovering perhaps as much as 
as people thought. And there is, of course, a danger in doing that. There is a danger in, in, in uh, calibrating, in, in oscillating, because as the general election looms nearer, of course, cut-through is very important, and simplicity is very important. So running a more kind of sophisticated message might be difficult uh, during an election. And, of course, as no doubt Simon Jenkins would say, we can't forget that Cameron was, to some extent, in a much easier position than any of his predecessors. Okay? He was facing a Labour Party that was past its sell-by date, both in terms of Tony Blair and, of course, in Gordon Brown. No one is denying that. I don't actually happen to think myself that that is enough to win you back government, but clearly it's very important. Uh, and clearly the poll lead that Cameron built up very early on was uh, instrumental in his ability to actually convince uh, his party that they picked the right man. Also, of course, you know, uh, again, rather obvious, but it's worth saying time passes. Okay? The old and the bold leave Parliament. Some of the poison goes out of the arguments. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher is um, consigned um, to history uh, rather than uh, being someone who can actually make a difference, if you like, in the internal debate of the party. So Cameron is to some extent taking advantage of that fact, almost inevitably. Um, but it's also very important to realise that it's not just generational replacement okay, that we're talking about here. People within the Conservative Party at, have actually changed themselves. They become slightly more pragmatic over time. Um, what I want to argue is that Cameron was essentially pushing at an open door with a large number of people in his party. And that personal conversion, if you like, to pragmatism is nicely illustrated uh, by the man who in 1999 said this, no location is as undignified as being in the centre an arid region where no principles can take root, etc., etc. A shameless place for politicians to be, and those who are there are politicians of easy virtue, happy to chat, massage public opinion, but never to challenge it. That, as some of you may know, of course, was the arch-moderniser Michael Gove. Okay? Not someone we now associate with a hard Thatcherite right style of conservative politics. So there's been some personal change there, some personal growth, if you like, uh, as well as some uh, collective change which I guess brings me back to the poem which might now resonate uh, with some of you a classic of self-help poetry it's not something I uh, a genre I particularly dip into myself very often but uh, uh, this I think um, you know summarizes the, the Conservative Party's uh, change quite neatly but um, I've begun with a poem I'm going to end slightly more riskily with a joke. You should never do that in lectures. We always tell young lecturers, but I'll, I'll try it anyway. Which, and the joke is this. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is only one, but the light bulb's got to really want to change. Okay? Uh, and to some extent, I think you know, that's what we've seen. But whether the efforts of this therapist will actually result in a clear win at the general election is something we're going to see. And whether they do or not, what we're also going to see is uh, whether the Conservative Party that he leads has changed as much um, as he might claim, or is in fact um, a party that has changed uh, rather less uh, and rather little, as some people fear. Okay, thank you very much.
Thank you, Tim, very much indeed. Um, we're going to hopefully have lots of contributions from you guys on the floor uh, and, and get the discussion going. But I, I wanted to just ask one question to, to, to kind of start Tim off, if you like. And that was to say, you, you talked a lot there about the individuals and the flaws in the individuals who ended up leading the party between uh, 1997 yeah. and 2005. <coughs> um, who should have been leading that party? My summation is that the person who you know, would have been the, the more centre-ground candidate would, on those in 97 and 2001, have been Ken Clark. But you know, my view would be that that would have caused a civil war in the party on the old favourite of Europe. Um, yeah, I agree with you, and I think that really comes back to this point about you know the, the small pond in which you're fishing, and when you you know you, you exclude someone um, because they have uh, ideological views that, as you say, will cause problems in the party, then you reduce, in fact, your chances of picking the right person. I, I agree. So, I, I don't think Ken Clark could ever have been leader of, of the Conservative Party. I, I think you're right, and to say that they should have picked him is, is nonsensical. So who should they have picked? <laughs> who should they have picked? Well, I haven't gone back and actually um, told them uh, that much. I think I'm, I'm being kind of um, presumptuous enough to tell them what they should have done anyway, but who they should have picked as leader, I don't know. Some people would argue maybe if they picked Michael Portillo um, in 2001, that may, may, may have made a difference. But even then, we're talking about someone who would have deeply divided, I think, uh, particularly constituency activists at that time, and indeed some of the MPs. He might have been a better choice, although actually I think even uh, at that time, Michael Portillo hadn't quite got it in the way that he got it um, a little bit later on, actually. And I think, uh, that's, I think he only wanted it completely on his terms. He yeah. wasn't willing to... Yeah, and, and, and that is quite interesting. I think, I think Michael Portillo makes it very clear in, in the book, actually, that um, you know, to, for him to have actually wanted the leadership, he would have had to get a vote of, you know, clear vote of confidence from the party uh, and a mandate for change before he even took it on, actually. And that, after all, in some sense, is what um, David Cameron actually got himself. I mean, we, we do have to remember that you know, David Cameron did win an election contest on a change-to-win platform. Now, clearly not everybody voted for him, but I think that illustrates that there were a lot of people in the party willing, if you like, to, to give things a go by then. Partly because, as Michael Howard himself says in the book, he, 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 um, he kind of tested the the, uh, the right-wing um, strategy to destruction um, in 2005. There didn't seem to be much other alternative, I think, for a lot of conservatives by then. And by the way, I mean, just to say about leadership contests, I think one of the, one of the, the, the interesting things I found about talking to people about the 2005 contest was that it's my belief that David Cameron was always going to win that contest. Okay? I, I don't think David Davis blew that contest in Blackpool. David Davis blew that contest um, by being David Davis um, for the last you know, 10, 15 years, there was no way that David Davis was going to ever win that election. And because of that, I think David Cameron was always likely to win it. Okay, let's get some contributions from the floor. There, there are microphones roving. Yeah, and by the way, they don't have to be questions. I mean, they can just be comments. Sure, we can absolutely. just have a general discussion. You know, so. Um, so, gentlemen in the front row. John Young. Um, a couple of points. First of all, um, Mr. Cameron's opposition to proportional representation is quite well known, and yet there is the very distinct possibility uh, that he may end up as the leader of a largest party without a majority, given the, the, the arithmetic. And I'd be very interested to know how you feel he would handle that mm -hmm. situation. The other thing is the elephant 
in the room, otherwise known as the European Union. Mm. How could David Cameron prevent um, a repetition of the big quarrels which have caused so much problem, so many difficulties in the, in the, in the last few years, right. both in and out of power? Thanks very much. Okay. Um, just to take the PR one in the hung parliament, I'm, I'm looking at Janice here because we're, gonna <laughs> we're doing a meeting at the Conservative Party Spring Forum on pre precisely these kinds of questions, actually. Um, well, one thing I, I would say um, about the, the possibility of a hung parliament is that I, I find it very interesting that most Conservative MPs assume that if um, the Conservatives are returned as the largest party, they will somehow be automatically given first go at forming an administration. It strikes me, actually, that the more likely possibility is that Labour will try and do some kind of deal with the Liberal Democrats, whether they're smaller than the Conservative Party or not. Um, and if we look back at British political history, I think it's, it, it's entirely constitutionally proper and possible that Gordon Brown will not simply leave Downing Street uh, the day after the election, but will actually try and face Parliament um, either because he thinks he can do a deal with the Liberal Democrats or he will try and force the Liberal Democrats to bring the Labour government down and therefore make it very clear to Liberal Democrat supporters that a vote for the Liberal Democrats is a vote for a Conservative government. So I suspect still that um, we'll get uh, a minority Conservative government in that case, um, but I, I don't think anyone should assume that that is the constitutional um, norm, if you like. It, it certainly um, is not. As for the elephant in the room, and I've described it on other occasions as the kind of iceberg issue, I think it, it really is going to be a problem. Not for the reasons that it was a problem in some ways in the 1990s, where the Conservative Party was actually very divided over the issue of Europe, but primarily because actually it is now so thoroughgoingly Eurosceptic. Uh, and it seems to me that it will be very difficult for any British government um, to follow the kind of agenda that some people in the Conservative Party would like that government to follow without running into major problems negotiating with its, its European partners and actually threatening, if you like, some of the national interests of this country. And we have seen, and this does go back to the 1990s, that governments generally, um, while they may be ideological creatures, when it comes to foreign policy, do tend to have uh, a more consensual view um, of, the, of the national interests. And I think one of the in some senses, admirable things about John Major it was that, in his terms anyway, he, he put up with a lot um, from his party because, as far as he was concerned, he was actually uh, pursuing the British national interest. So I do think it's going to be very difficult for David Cameron, if he becomes Prime Minister, to deliver the kind of policies on Europe that a lot um, of his supporters would actually like. So I think it will be a difficult issue for him. I don't think necessarily the party will fall out with itself, but they may fall out with David Cameron. Yeah. Um, picking up on the point about how much the party itself has changed, um, a colleague of mine's written a, a handbook uh, to a putative uh, uh, Tory government, and he describes the, the 2010 intake as being as being yeoman, uh, yeah. you know, very local, uh, deeply Eurosceptic, as you, as you suggest. You know, a lot of ex-military uh, guys there, um, and a lot of my guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, he, and he believes they'll be, you know, they'll be very hard to whip, very hard to discipline. And I wonder if any observations on that kind of, uh, that kind of idea that you know, can, can Cameron hold his party together or is it going to be a Blair and are we misunderestimating him? All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I mean, the, the, the real expert work on this is done by someone like Philip Cowley, okay? And what, what Phil would, um, I think, say is that it's very difficult, actually, to extrapolate um, people's behaviour from their uh, ideological views, particularly before they get into Parliament. And that most um, MPs, when they come in, in in 2010, will be thinking less about how they um, persuade David Cameron to go in this direction than that, than whether he will actually give them a job or not in the, in the short to medium term. So we can expect probably the first two years, um, Phil would guess, um, that the, the, the Parliamentary Conservative Party will be um, quite quiescent. Um, after that, I guess, when people realise that they haven't been chosen, uh, and perhaps they're never going to be chosen, or they have been chosen and dumped fairly quickly, um, that's when I think you'll begin to see problems. But actually, I mean, Jonathan may have some views on this because Jonathan knows an awful lot about the, the, the candidates in a, in a great deal. So you might want well to say yeah, something. Yeah, I about mean, um, we at Conservative Home have done quite a lot of research into the, the likely new intake and what you uh, need to think of in terms of even if Cameron gets a majority of one in the House of Commons, more than half of his parliamentary party will be brand new MPs, which is a staggering challenge for the whips. Um, but certainly, uh, you're right, there's a lot of people coming from a local base. Uh, there's, uh, of, mm. In terms of the candidates in the top 200 target seats and, uh, and safe seats coming in, uh, and I'm not saying that the party's going to win those 200 target seats, but that was the kind of um, arbitrary number we took, kind of seats requiring a swing of 10% or so or less to win. Uh, you know, more than 50 of those candidates are or have been local councillors in those areas. They come from a local political background rather than uh, you know, kind of carpet bagging in a particular area. Um, and one thing that's quite significant that, again, people haven't put a lot of thought into is David Cameron's pledge to reduce the size of Parliament by 10%, that is, to, you know, by 65 MPs uh, in that first Parliament, which would suggest that you're going to have a, an election in five years' time. So all this is assuming David Cameron becomes Prime Minister and the bill gets passed, but uh, a boundary commission would reduce the number of MPs to, to 585, which inevitably means that you're going to have fewer MPs per county, which means you're likely going to have sitting Conservative MPs having to fight against each other for nominations in a smaller number of seats, which I think will make them far more focused on what their constituencies, and in particular their constituency parties, but also their constituents wanting them to, to do and how they act and vote in Parliament. Uh, and I also think in the wake of the whole expenses saga, you know, when faith in politicians is an all-time low, I think that the new intake is going to be more focused than ever on wanting to not be seen as being part of a political class mm. and a Westminster class and, and wanting to be grounded in their constituencies and, and doing the right thing by their constituencies, uh, even if it means challenging the party. And there's, a, there's another aspect to this which uh, I think Jonathan um, uh, has brought up before actually and, and this is um, Cameron's promise um, on uh, making uh, uh, progress with the number of women who will serve in, in a Conservative government uh, and that will mean that actually um, if, he, if he does um, meet those promises that um, there may well be some very aggrieved men within the Conservative Party who feel that they have been overlooked uh, on purely tokenistic grounds, and that is something that perhaps could cause uh, more tensions as well. I don't know if you want to say anything about well, that. Cameron has said it is his aspiration, his aspiration I believe aspiration. it is now, yes. that he wants, at the end of a parliament, for a third of his 
ministers to be women. Now, whether I, I think he may get around it slightly by using quite a lot of women in the House of Lords rather mm. than the House of Commons. Yeah. I mean, as it stands at the moment, there are currently uh, 18 or is it 19 after by-election women Tory MPs. After the election, uh, it's likely to be about 60, uh, or certainly approaching 60. Um, and you know, in terms of assuming that there's a, a government of what um, 90 or so people, you yeah. know, that's you know at least half of the women Tory MPs becoming ministers, and then and that and that, that's kind of you know that's before you've excluded um, what Tim so wonderfully described as the, the mad, the bad, and the dangerous to know, whatever it was. Uh, and anyway, um, it's, you're right; it could well be an issue. Mm. Um, Thanks, Jonathan. Um, can I take you back to 1979 yeah. and the election of a Conservative yeah. government, but not in the UK, in Canada? Right. Joe Clark became Conservative Prime Minister very much against the odds in Ottawa, uh, led a minority government during a pretty torrid economic circumstances, was forced to pass very unpopular spending cuts, raised very unpopular taxes, um, did an alliance with a third party who, once they saw how unpopular all these measures were, promptly ratted on him, forced an election, and the Prime Minister, Joe Clark, was forced from office. Mm. If you were David Cameron and you were in a similar situation, what do you think he'll do? Turn around to Gordon Brown and say, you threw a double six, have another go, and wait <laughs> for him. To, to do the unpopular measures or jump in and do it yourself? No, I mean, I would fully expect uh, David Cameron to actually you know, take up the baton himself and form a minority government, and I assume what he would try and do is look towards um, not necessarily a Canadian model, but look at, at, at uh, say, uh, what Harold Wilson did between 1964 uh, and 1966, uh, which is to go back to the electorate not having done a great deal, but not having messed up, if you like, um, within um, uh, 12 to 18 months. Uh, and uh, quite effectively, as Wilson was able to do then, um, suggest that uh, the, the Labour government haven't really been given a fair crack of the whip, that it needed a bigger majority in order to be, be able to do its job properly, and that a lot of the challenges and difficulties that it were facing um, were all the previous government's fault. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the kind of rhetorical political strategy, I'm sure it would be that. But then that begs the question of what he does within those 12 to 18 months, the kind of measures that, as you say, he might need to, um, or as you hint anyway, he might need to, to, to enact. And I think that's where, obviously, a great deal of prioritisation is going to have to take place. We're going to have to, you know, think, well, what is it that a Conservative government could pull out of its current programme? Uh, that it could feasibly do in those 12 to 18 months. Um, and when we're, we're looking, obviously, at, at some kind of action on the deficit, but probably not um, too much, given what Cameron's been saying recently. And presumably we're also looking for a few kind of flagship policies. I mean, people in this hall may have as much idea about, you know, what would work in, in that sense. I would have thought, for example, the education reforms will probably see... Um, come through, not least because they're fronted by, by Michael Gove, who, who most people in the, in the party regard as a, you know, a, a sort of talented um, prospect, but which I think you know, are also, if you like, um, symbolic of, of a kind of new style of, of conservatism. So I, I'd expect to see them, but other people might have ideas. Jonathan might have ideas about other 
pieces of legislation or policy that, that they prioritise. I mean, certainly in the, in the, fir the first 100 days, which is kind of a narrative that's driven very much by, by the media, but, but one which will be used as a, something by which to judge them, and the, I think the 100th day is the Saturday, the 15th of August, if there's a, an election on May the 6th, and I think the 15th of August is a Saturday, so the Sunday papers can do all their stuff in the middle of August when, when it would otherwise be silly season. But the, the, the big three priorities for the first 100 days, I'm reliably informed, uh, would be obviously the whole addressing the deficit issue, and there will be an emergency budget within 50 days. Uh, and then the two big things, education you mentioned, uh, and the other big one is welfare. Now, both those uh, areas, education and welfare, are areas that really need legislation to, to get things moving, but actually you won't actually see results on those probably till the end of that parliament at the earliest because mm. it takes time to set up new schools and it takes time for... You know, culture change in the benefit system and, and, and all the rest of it to, to take hold. Um, so those are certainly early priorities, but they're not quick wins. No. Uh, are there any questions at the top? Yes, there's a in the front row in the gallery. Um, you mentioned about the 2005 election. You said that it was inevitable. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to see if you could go into more about that, because one of the things that was interesting is the conventional narrative is that uh, the Blackpool uh, conference, he gave this amazing speech that actually won. Actually, if you were the, the people who were there with the clapometers, which measure claps, the, the, the most popular speech in the hall was actually Malcolm Rifkin, got the, get the, got the best um, right. response. So I was wondering whether you thought that when you say it was inevitable, do you mean that the people behind the Conservative Party, which figures? Because I don't think necessarily it was the the base support, if you know what I mean. You're, you're right, no. I mean, I guess when I'm talking about inevitable, um, in as much as anything can be inevitable, I'm obviously talking about the constituency that first elects um, the leader to go through to the contest in the country. And I, and I think it would have been very, very difficult for David Davis to win over the Parliamentary Party. I mean, there were all sorts of figures published about David Davis's support um, as we went on. You know, it was sort of touching 50, touching 60, etc. But it was simply never high enough um, to persuade most Conservative MPs that actually he was going to get um, their majority support. I mean, if anything, it was an illustration of the ceiling on his support, well, the he, numbers he, he was getting. He had, he had, I think I'm right in saying he had 66 yeah. declarations yeah. at the first ballot, and he got 60 votes. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And it went down, it went down from yes. there. And I mean, it, David Davis himself didn't do himself any favours, um, either with the Parliamentary Party or in particular with the media, to be honest. And if, if you talk to some journalists, I don't know if you know, Jonathan would say this, but um, uh, David Davis was not a particularly popular figure um, with journalists, just in terms of sort of the, the way that he dealt um, with journalists over the years, which meant in some ways that they were kind of looking the media for, for an alternative candidate. And, 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 and Cameron, you know, after the Blackpool speech in particular, but, you know, was locked onto, if you like, by the media because he was an absolutely great story. I mean, he was a much better story than, than David Davis. But in the end, the media support, um, you know, is not absolutely crucial. What is just as crucial is, you know, David Davis's problems among MPs, and I guess as well the effect that David Cameron seemed to have on undecided voters. And I think 
the Blackpool speech was, you know, important in that respect, but actually more important was probably Frank Luntz and uh, the, the Newsnight show, uh, where Frank Luntz, the American pollster, uh, conducted a, a series of uh, what he called focus groups um, uh, with uh, so-called undecided voters, and um, completely without Frank's assistance, obviously, um, showed that Cameron uh, was clearly the best thing since sliced bread, uh, in fact the greatest thing since JFK really, um, for, for most of the voters uh, who were watching them. And uh, I think David Cameron's team made a, a great deal of you know, use of, of that particular program uh, and I think that helped con convince Conservative MPs that they were going to choose someone who was you know, electable uh, in terms of the general public, someone who's going to be taken seriously. And of course, I guess that must have always been the slight concern that he was young, you know, lightweight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think you know that helped convince quite a few MPs. Um, the woman there. Hi there. I was wondering if you could expand on the role that behavioural economics plays in your thesis. I've been quite fascinated by how the parties <coughs> managed to claim this idea is for themselves, but I've been more fascinated by academics letting them away with it. Isn't it a bit embarrassing to be saying that the people make irrational choices as though it's something new? Right. Um, well, it, it, it is new for political science, actually. I mean, um, what... Sorry? 50 years. Well, I mean, it's, it, it is interesting, isn't it? Political science, I guess, is a, is a discipline, and it's a discipline that kind of I come out of, um, which um, is possibly overly eclectic, possibly lacks a sense of you know, self-confidence in its ability to kind of build up a, um, you know, frameworks for, it, for itself. And um, certainly in the last 20 years, it's become, uh, in America, you know, completely dominated almost by a kind of rational choice approach. Um, and the interesting thing about that rational choice approach is that it relies on a very kind of reductionist um, you know, economic model, the kind of homo economicus model, um, that you know, economics has long since abandoned in some ways, but political science doesn't seem to have caught up at all with, with that um, fact. Now, obviously, when we're talking about people's voting behaviour, I think you know, there will be some political scientists who are willing to acknowledge that you know, the, the, uh, the irrational side of, uh, of people makes a difference. But in terms of actually um, you know, decision-making, particularly within parties, I've seen no one... Um, actually take account of any of these kind of, you know, um, uh, this move of psychology into economics at all. And when it comes to especially, you know, decision-making behaviour, and especially um, the extent to which people will or not risk change, it seems to me, you know, uh, a very obvious um, explanation, one that we can't afford to ignore. And, and while, as I say, I think individuals are important um, in terms of their personal biographies, um, I do actually think that we do have to remember and it seems a very obvious point, but it, it does have to be said that politicians are, you know, not immune from the same kind of, you know, biases that, you know, cause us to mess up <laughs> our personal lives and our professional lives in, in, in so many ways and cause us to um, move towards all sorts of, you know, suboptimal solutions. Um, and that's where I also think that... Um, um, this, this uh, concept of path dependence is extremely important and that is actually something that political science has taken a bit more seriously. It doesn't come straight out of economics but some institutional economics okay, um, uh, brings it in. Uh, and, and I think political science 
is waking up to the fact that you know time is incredibly important in any explanation. But of course, when you're trying to, to do, for example, comparative politics, it's very difficult to build time in as well as space. Um, and when you're writing a book like this, um, uh, you know, what do you do? Do you actually uh, run it as a narrative um, or not? Now, I know for, uh, and I, I was saying this at a seminar earlier, some of my colleagues are out there, and they said it. I mean, the, the two things that make hardcore social scientists reach for their revolver are the words narrative and description. Okay, and of course, this book, to some extent, is you know full of, of some of those things. So it's a kind of a, a risky book in that sense um, for for someone who also wants um, to to uh, produce a book that hopefully is kind of amusing and entertaining and uh, and interesting and says something to a, a wider audience, but that will also be um, uh, of interest to you know the the community that I, I work within. So it's a difficult one. Um. So the microphone coming. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say enrol at the University of Sussex. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly wrong on that count, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I don't think it's a problem that affects the... Actually, why don't you stop with the microphone? Can you, can you stop with the microphone and just give, give the microphone to the lady with the purple scarf on? Because she might actually have something interesting to say about this. You better introduce yourself. I, I, I'm Janice Small. I'm the, the prospective parliamentary candidate for Batley and Spen, and I'm no token woman. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No, no, they don't. In the party, David Cameron has worked so hard to get women... 30% of the parliamentary party will be women. I never played the sort of central office game. Had I been playing that game, I, I think I would have got there sooner. I'm number 143 on the list, so David Cameron has to win an extra 26 seats over his 117 to get me there. But I can tell you, when I went, um, I went for interviews, an awful lot of interviews for target seats and also um, safe seats as well, and what David Cameron did was change the perception of the selectorate because the, the, it's not the problem of the country and the perception of women in Parliament. It's actually the selectorate, the Tory selectorate that we have to go through. And because they're of a certain age and class, etc., that will change. That will change very, very soon because inevitably because of, of, of age. But what David Cameron did do is say to the people, you've got to interview 50% of women. Now, a lot of them went screaming and kicking, um, but we stood in front of them. And a lot of them said... 
Yeah, we've got some good women here. We've got doctors, we've got dentists, we've got school teachers coming forward, we've got people from all different backgrounds. I come from a very working class background. My father was a coal worker, my mother was a cleaner. You know, I'm now hopefully going to be one of the next MPs in David Cameron's um, cabinet. So, so we have changed, and there's an awful lot of us there that are not token women. That's why we've never had quotas. Our party have never had quotas. The Liberal Democrats have quotas, and also Labour have quotas. Um, yeah, but I'm just saying well, we don't have that. You know, we quite, we're still quite democratic. Could resist a dig at the other parties, could you, Janice? Well, they, they don't have quotas, Tim. You know, no, we no, don't no, have no. quotas. I know. Do, you, do you want to pass the mic on to the middle of the row? Where there's a man. Does the Conservative Party know what it thinks? I'm thinking in terms of two specific things, but also in a general wider sense, where their first instincts have, perhaps now they've been led to question, in terms of intervention both on the foreign stage, standing next to America uh, and uh, going to war in the Middle East, and intervention where Yeah, good question. I think one of the problems, obviously, for, for George Osborne is that the, the, the figures are continually shifting, aren't they? So not only did the Conservative Party leadership have to do uh, an abrupt um, uh, uh, reorientation, if you like, of, uh, of their whole approach once the recession hit, but um, ever since you know, late 2007, um, uh, the figures have been bouncing around. Um, you know, some people think the economy was going to recover quicker than it does. Some people think that it's going to be worse than it does, uh, uh, worse than um, uh, it was. It was earlier thought. So, what do you do? Um, you know, are you able to uh, make these um, cuts early on, or are you going to strangle uh, the economy if you do so? So, I mean, I, I think uh, Osborne's instincts difficult to say what they are, but I think he's, he's in a very difficult position, just as the Chancellor of the Exchequer is in a very difficult position. He's going to be running an economy uh, you know, about which he's got incomplete information um, and which seems to be changing all the time. So I, mean, I, I think the, the recent reorientation of policy sort of just over the weekend, as it were, is obviously political in the sense that I think you know, there are messages coming through that it's not playing as well as it had with um, uh, the public, that austerity message. Um, but it's also trying to take account of the fact that, you know, this guy might actually be running the economy um, in uh, six months' time, and that clearly, you know, he, he doesn't want to be the Chancellor that chokes off, you know, a, a very feeble recovery um, very early on, irrespective of what his instincts uh, may be. Um, on, on foreign policy, I mean, I think that's a very, very interesting question. I mean, I, I wonder how much um, Iraq has made a difference to the Conservative Party because, you know, there we had a situation in which not, not only did the Conservative Party not, if you like, um, question what Tony Blair was doing, but certainly um, when Ian Duncan Smith was there was actually very gung-ho um, for precisely that kind of intervention, precisely that kind of action. So it was actually impossible for the Conservative Party under a leader like Ian Duncan Smith to, to take any action because this guy is a convinced Atlanticist and a, and a, and a hawk, if you like, uh, uh, at least it was at that stage. But then, you know, Michael Howard was placed in a terribly difficult position because uh, he got himself into all sorts of knots about, you know, well, if I'd known what I 
uh, <laughs> what I didn't know then, I'd, uh, I'd have thought a different way, you know, a very confusing newspaper article he wrote that appeared to be, you know, trying to sort of distance himself from the decision to go to war in Iraq. Very, very difficult one. I don't know whether actually what happened then will make a difference to the kind of Atlanticist perspective the Conservative Party has already had. Certainly the person, of course, uh, who, who you might expect to play a very big role in that, Liam Fox, it strikes me as still very much a kind of convinced um, uh, pro-American. Uh, in, in that in that case, I don't know what Jonathan thinks on that one. Liam definitely is. Yeah, well, and, and I think Hague is very pro-American. Yeah, well. um, yeah. So we're unlikely, in some senses, to see a re reorientation that you might have expected, given you know the the, the awful um, finger burning we got in Iraq, which is interesting. You know, the, the party's not adapted, perhaps, to that. Um, woman in the f second row. <laughs> you me? Um, I just wanted to say um, recent um, current affairs show that the Conservative Party have sort of taken a U-turn in terms of the, the aggressive approach mm. that they initially stuck in cutting the deficit and how does that sit with the um, National Health Service? How does that fit with the National Health Service? Um, well, I think, I mean, that, that, that dovetails quite well, doesn't it? Because the whole point, and we, we, we saw, the, we saw the, the, the poster in some ways. I mean, you know, part of, part of Cameron's um, offer, if, if you like, is to protect and ring fence the National Health Service as well as, I think, education spending. And there was some question earlier on of defence, but that seems to have kind of... No, it's, it's health and diffid. Oh, health and diffid. Okay, so health and diffid. Um, so they're the two protected areas. So, I mean, I mean health spending should, shouldn't suffer either way, whether they take an aggressive uh, attitude to the deficit or not. That's, that's the idea. You don't look like you believe that. I don't. I'm not convinced. <laughs> okay. But then, but then, I mean, that just shows, in some senses, the, the um, scale of the, the problem that the Conservatives have um, had uh, on, on the National Health Service and still have to some extent. I mean, that's why you get exactly that kind of poster because it has to be continually... Um, reinforce that you know this this is an area that's going to be protected and this is an area you can trust the, the Conservative Party on and, and uh, I mean I think Cameron has done a great deal actually to reassure um, people Sorry, about that no you don't look like you're easily reassured to me. I just wanted to say because I had yeah. another question yeah. I hope when he's choosing um, a lot of um, women in his party it's going to reflect the society is yeah, I mean that's that's a very good question, isn't it? The extent to which actually the the the, the changing makeup of conservative candidates is actually as kind of real um, as um, people suggest. I mean, obviously, you know, Janice is is saying there that you know there has been some change, but I I rather suspect that a lot of the the, the women candidates that we're getting will probably be like a lot of the male candidates we're getting. They might be local. Um, but they're not going to come from a particularly different background to the, the, the backgrounds that have traditionally served the, the Conservative Party um, very well. But again, Jonathan, I mean, you, you might question that. I don't know. In you terms know, of think, their sort of occupational yeah, background. I think that's, you're possibly being slightly unfair. I'm not, I, looking at the, the new candidates coming in, there is, there's quite a number of what I would call Thatcher's children. I think the... Um, the, the, the people coming in are people who politically came of age uh, 
um, d during the 1980s, but but also, you know, there, there are a lot. Of, I think there's a you know, the kind of demonstration of social mobility as envisaged by Thatcher. Uh, is coming through and you know there are quite a lot of candidate, candidates coming through who haven't been to university at all there's a lot who uh, you know are, are people who have, have are, are, are talking proudly of their humble roots and how they've got on in life um, by, by adopting that very kind of 1980s Tory approach of kind of getting on and doing, doing the right thing by themselves and their family and, 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 and making some money and, 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 and so on um, No, I think there has been change. No, no, I think there has been some change, and, and also in, in terms of in terms of BME representation, there will probably be a dozen uh, Tory MPs uh, from from black and minority ethnic communities, which um, will will be a, a very significant change. Yeah. Um, sir, Mr. Wright from the BBC. Two things. You mentioned Lord Ashcroft, and I still think he could be problematic in the months oh, before yeah. the election if the Electoral Commission come back with their yeah. judgment on him. Can you tell us a bit about why he's backed the party as he has done for the last few years? I mean, we know from that coffee book that he's a real strategist. He loves the politics. He loves the game. What does he actually believe in? We, we, we hear nothing from him, so we don't know. I mean, have you picked up what he wants this party to do that he's ploughed so much money into and he clearly wants to win. And the second thing, why haven't the Tories got this election in the bag? It's an old government, deep recession, they can't break through 40%. You know, they, they have looked fragile the last month in particular. The calibrated policies look like they're creaking. Mm. There are questions about David Cameron's personality carrying it through. How worried should they be about the position that they're in now on the eve of this election? Those the two questions. Well, to answer the, the second question first, I mean, I... I think, in some senses, the, the state that they're in at the moment illustrates um, why um, people who say that uh, you know, the Conservative Party has just simply, in the end, had to sit back and wait for the electoral pendulum um, to change are so wrong. Because one of, one of the, the problems about what they did in 1997, uh, 2001 and 2005 is that they haven't really come within touching distance of the Labour Party in terms of uh, you know, the, the Labour Party's majority in Parliament. And to actually overcome... Um, the, the size of the, the, you know, the electoral mountain they face. They would be doing incredibly well. I mean, historically, it would be incredible um, for a government to be able to overhaul in one go um, uh, a, you know, a majority uh, like that. I mean, the only hope that they have is that, of course, Labour you know, weren't that popular in 2005 and, and won't be that popular um, this time. So I, I think that people who argue that the Conservatives should be kind of running away with it right now um, are wrong, actually. I mean, uh, I think, you know, to be 10% ahead, considering where they've been over the last 10, 15 years, is actually, you know, quite an achievement. Um, and in terms of, um, you know, w what, what we will see in, in this election campaign, campaign I mean, I, I do take the point that, you know, they're looking more fragile, and I do take the point that this calibration exercise, you know, can become more difficult as messages need to be simplified. Um, but then again, there is the possibility that, um, and I'm sure this is something the Conservatives will, will play very heavily on, that as we go towards that election and it looks like producing uh, an uncertain result, um, that 
it may be the case that voters actually don't want that uncertain result, and that will cause people to jump one way or another, and probably in the Conservatives' direction, I would guess. Uh, and that might mean the predictions of a, uh, of a hung parliament are, are slightly off, actually, and that the Conservatives will probably achieve you know, a, a working majority. And I, I think I know this is something that, that Jonathan um, thinks as well. You, 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 I guess, have to look at what's going on in the target um, seats uh, to see whether, in fact, um, the, the, the swing at a national level um, it's actually underestimating how many seats the, the party will pick up um, in Parliament. And that takes us neatly to Lord Ashcroft, doesn't it? <laughs> um, now, in, in terms of what Lord Ashcroft um, actually thinks, I don't know, it's a very interesting one, because this was a guy who um, really stopped funding the Conservative Party when John, John Major came along. Actually asked for his money back, didn't he? I mean, he, he, he had a big loan um, made out to the Conservative Party um, that, you know, with some considerable difficulty, the Conservative Party had to pay back to him in very short order. So frustrated uh, was Lord Ashcroft with John Major's kind of Weasley words and, and um, uh, uh, wishy-washy politics. You know, this was very much someone who, you know, was a man who sort of pulled himself up from by his bootstraps and, and was very much a Thatcherite. Um, and yet, as you say, in and smell the coffee, he's promoting, if you like, the party... Um, selling itself at least as, as, as distancing itself from, from those kinds of policies. Now whether, and I guess this goes for the Conservative Party as a whole, that means that he's undergone some genuine, um, not necessarily Damascene, but uh, gradual conversion, or whether that simply means he's realistic enough to know that in opposition you have to sell yourself rather differently from um, how you might be able to sell yourself in government it is a moot point, and it's not one I, I know the answer to. I, mean, I don't know if you've got any more insight into Lord Ashcroft's mind than I have, Jonathan. Have you? I'm not, I'm not sure I do. <laughs> I, I, I should obviously declare the interest of Lord Ashcroft uh, holds yes, a majority yeah. stake in the website for which uh, I write. Um, and given that we're very, we've only got time for one more question, actually, and I'm keen to get one more person in uh, before we uh, call things to a close. So um, the gentleman in the sec uh, third row on, on the right, please. Ben Wright's identical twin. Um, I want to go back to the theme you addressed right at the very end, uh, where you talked about whether the measure of transformation within the Conservative Party will stem, uh, will, will really be gauged at the election. Mm. Yeah, if you go back to 1994 when Blair took the reins of power, and there was almost an overnight uh, and uh, pretty evident transformation within the Labour Party with the abandonment of Clause 4 and the birth of New Labour. Um, is there really any shifting, are there any shifting sands of political direction or affiliation within the Conservative Party? Um, or does their um, apparent or uh, alleged transformation really stem from the fact that David Cameron is just a fresh face and has charisma? No, I, I think it is, it is more than simply um, about David Cameron. I mean, I, I do think David Cameron has kind of forced the party in some ways to acknowledge some of the, uh, the defects of its previous um, strategy. And I do think he's probably actually um, forced the party in, in some ways to accept that it does have to uh, adapt itself to, to people's preferences and to some of what the Labour government has done and, and what the Conservative Party has essentially been about, I guess, over the last um, 10 years is just as the Labour Party had to come up with a kind of post-Thatcherite politics, it's had to come up with a kind of post-Blair politics. 
Um, and I think a lot of um, the Conservative Party um, struggles early on was because they too were trying to go for a post-Thatcherite project, whereas David Cameron is actually, as I say, going for a post-Blair project. In other words, possibly leaving some of that new Labour settlement in place. And after all, what we know from, from, from political history is that governments do tend to leave an awful lot of, of things that their predecessors have done in place, despite their promises to tear down the walls in opposition, um, government is about choosing and, and governments, particularly a minority government, will have to leave some things in place that you know, will, will stick in the craw of, of, uh, of many Tories. But I, I think um, Gordon Brown, uh, sorry Gordon Brown, but, uh, David Cameron, well, that's a Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> I don't think. Um, uh, I think. I think David Cameron, and this is where I think Ian McLeod is very important, is very much a one-nation Tory in, in that respect, in the sense that I think he's realistic enough to know that, you know, politics is to some extent, um, you know, the, the slow boring of hard boards, as, as, as Weber said, and, and that, you, you know, you can't do everything um, very, very quickly, and you do have to come to terms to some extent with what your predecessors have done, even if it's not something you would necessarily do in your heart of hearts. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, the clock has struck eight, so formalities have to come to a close. Um, there were lots more questions we couldn't take, so you clearly want more. And in order to get more, you can buy Tim's book. Um, Good link. It is, uh, if you, outside the lecture theatre, it's on sale for £20, which is a reduction of £5 from the cover price for one night only. Uh, and Tim will obviously be, be around to sign copies of the book for you as well. Uh, which, which he looks forward to doing, uh, but uh, in the, in the, as, you, as you prepare to dig out for your purses and wallets to do that, I hope you'll uh, show your appreciation to Tim in the usual way.